Welcome to GovCast, connecting with federal IT's top decision makers. I'm Alexander Bolova, production lead at GovCIO Media and Research. With me today is staff writer researcher, Catherine McPhail. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Alex. So you had the opportunity to chat with Ann Duncan, the CIO at the Department of Energy. How was that conversation? It was great. I mean, she has long been someone that I've really admired in the federal IT community. So I was actually so, so thrilled to sit down with her. Why is 2023 a big year for energy? Energy is in implementation season, as Ann Duncan will tell you. The bipartisan infrastructure law is going to be standing up 60 new DOE programs, and there are a lot of new investments. There is a lot of work to be done, and climate resilience and energy justice is going to play a major role in how that work unfolds. What's the biggest takeaway from this episode? What should our listeners keep in mind? I think Anne said it best, which is that the most important thing to do is to be thinking about climate change and climate resilience. It's not always top of mind, especially as we're chasing emerging technologies and massive modernization and security efforts. But it is important to have an eye towards this because it is an issue of national security and it is everyone's problem. And it's going to take all of us to solve it. And that includes the IT industry. Thank you, Catherine. Let's take a listen to your conversation. Today, we are talking about climate resilience. Climate resilience work is growing across the federal space, and it's also an important part of Energy's mission. It has also long been a part of your career, especially in one of your prior positions as the CIO for the EPA. So, to start us off, I was wondering if you could tell us about your journey in this space and why sustainability and climate resilience is important to you. Sure, Catherine. I think. Um... You know, you really hit uh, a key point here about my background with EPA. I remember when I interviewed for the for the job at EPA, I was sitting uh, with Gina McCarthy uh, in her office, and uh, she asked me why I wanted the job, and I said because uh, you know climate is the most pressing issue uh, we have right now, and this was 2013, and you know we have we have made not enough progress since 2013 to reverse the course we're on in terms of, of significant climate change. So I think it's the existential threat and, and crisis for uh, our generation, for, for our time. And we really need to be very focused on uh, resolving this issue. It, it's unfortunate that uh, it has become a political issue. Uh, because it, it's really an issue of, of of whether life on this planet is is uh, gets significantly harder for people going forward. You're absolutely right, and I know we're seeing more energy around it today. Um, we wish we'd seen more in the past, but there is a lot of important work happening, especially at the Department of Energy. And the DOE, in fact, has a very far flung mission, including a lot of things that people might not always expect. So. Before we dive in further, could you give us some background in what it is that the department does? So thanks for that question, Catherine. I think 
that uh, the mission is broader than anyone can possibly imagine if they've never really dug into it. It certainly surprised me how broad DOE's mission was. We start all the way from our nuclear mission, which includes nuclear nonproliferation. It includes uh, managing the nuclear stockpile and ensuring that that we have an operational uh, system. And that means doing things like building new nuclear warheads. Uh, and that same vein, we're still cleaning up for the Manhattan Project. We've made incredible progress, cleaned up over a hundred sites from the Manhattan Project, but we still have some to go. Uh, you go from there, the sort of almost, almost the opposite end of the spectrum uh, of our mission is that we uh, manage the power grid for much of the country. We sell uh, power that is generated primarily by the uh, network of Western dams, but also on the East Coast as well. And we sell that power and we manage the power grid in 38 states as part of that process. So we're really uh, fundamentally uh, important to uh, managing the power grid and also to working with the private sector, uh, energy sector, both in, in uh, electricity and oil and natural gas as the critical infrastructure authority uh, for that. Um, section of critical infrastructure. And finally, the thing that people probably know DOE for the most, which are our national labs. So we have 17 national labs doing research in virtually anything you can imagine. And those labs uh, are spread across uh, the country, are part of di different parts of the DOE mission, and really are the engine of innovation uh, for the United States and, and in a great extent for the world. Those labs do such exciting work. I know we've covered um, geospatial modeling, decarbonization pathway modeling, and all sorts of things that are also really important to this effort of addressing the effects of climate change. And that's also very important to the Biden administration, which has set out some very ambitious goals. Um, the federal sustainability plans at the target to achieve a carbon pollution-free electricity sector by 2035 and net zero emissions economy-wide by no later than 2050. What is the Department of Energy's role in seeing those goals to fruition? Catherine, that's a, a great question. I probably can't cover the breadth of everything that uh, DOE does, but I will share a few things that we're doing across that space. Uh, certainly, it's a huge part of our mission to develop and re research and develop next generation energy technologies. And we want to secure the energy grid from all hazards in the process. Uh, including everything from hurricanes to cyber attacks. So we need that clean energy grid and we need it to be secure. So several things we're doing uh, specifically within the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, there's a big investment in clean energy. DOE has 35 billion in terms of direct funding, 350 billion in loan authority. So we've already invested over 1.5 billion of that. And we're continuing to put grants and grants and loans out there every day, uh, as we refer to it at DOE right now. This is implementation season, and as implementation season, uh, we are mobilizing those resources. We have worked on um, critical infrastructure research or labs. We are working on uh, uh, marshaling resources for heat pump manufacturing as part of the Defense Production Act. We've allocated $9 billion to states and tribes to support home energy uh, rebates so they can put clean energy on, on, on homes and tribal lands. And we created the Energy Infrastructure Reinvestment Program for loans to retool, repower, repurpose, and replace energy infrastructure with low carbon emission infrastructure. Under the CHIPS and Science Act, 
which was signed uh, by President Biden in July. There's $67 billion for DOE, uh, and that includes $50 billion for the Office of Science, uh, which enables cutting-edge research and development in clean energy and advanced computing and manufacturing. Uh, we also That also helps us invest, and that law helps us invest in our national lab infrastructure and establish the Foundation for Energy Security and Innovation, uh, which will help us deepen our partnerships with universities and the private sector as we look to create and deploy new energy technologies for the future. We also are employing the bipartisan infrastructure law. Uh, so we're one year into that law. Uh, and in that process, we've launched the Clean Energy Corps to bring thousands of new staff into DOE. The target, I believe, is 2,000. Um, and we've launched the Building a Better Grid, grid Initiative to uh, catalyze the upgrading of our energy grid and transmission lines across the country because that continues to be a weak point. Uh, we have approved, recently we approved the last of 50 um, plans for the states plus DC and Puerto Rico for EV charging. So there is now a plan for EV charging for every state, DC and Puerto Rico. Um, and then we are going to fund $5 billion for, from, that, from the bipartisan infrastructure law into building that, uh, that um, uh, EV charging network around the, the country. Um, we've also opened applications for a $7 billion program to create clean regional clean hydrogen energy hubs. And we've put out $2.8 billion in battery manufacturing grants to reshore battery manufacturing, because uh, obviously we need to develop that domestic supply chain for EVs and grid storage, uh, because we do not have, and there are many examples, but this is one, we do not have the manufacturing infrastructure in this country that we need uh, to move forward. And then finally, I'll mention that the Diablo Canyon Power Plant in California received the first round of funding from the Civil Nuclear Credit Program. This is designed to help keep our operating nuclear power plants open. Uh, as uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, we've not invested nuclear power in this country um, or in the world the way we probably should have. If we had continued on the trajectory we were in the 70s, uh, we would not be in the situation we are now. But you know, we scared ourselves off of nuclear power. Mm. Um, and it's it's unfortunate because um, the, the safety record of nuclear power is incredibly high. Um, it's, it's, it's much better than any other power safety record that we can imagine. Um, and so we need to make sure that our, our clean energy strategy is an all of the above strategy, including nuclear energy and keeping those power plants going. Wow, you can really see how expansive this work is. You mentioned a lot of new funding, and I know that DOE is a part of Biden's Justice 40 initiative, which says that 40% of federal investments should flow to disadvantaged communities that are marginalized, underserved, and overburdened by pollution. So how does climate justice and the Justice 40 initiative fit into this work at DOE? So, so climate justice and Justice 40 are incredibly important initiatives to us at DOE. Back when I was at EPA, we worked on environmental justice there. Um, it was we were we were in a much smaller group of people working on it, and this administration has really increased the emphasis on on Justice 40. Uh, so so as as you said, uh, Justice 40 means 40 percent of the benefits of any of these programs uh, go to underserved and overburdened communities to ensure uh, that that we are doing things that are helping those communities and not harming them. 
There are examples in the past of efforts to decarbonize that have actually impacted those communities even more negatively around the country. So we don't want to do that again. In fact, we want to help those communities. So at DOE, we have a number of activities that, that we um, we're doing, I mean, the most important one when you get right down to it is that we are tracking and monitoring our grants to ensure that we comply with those requirements, that we do 40% or better uh, for those communities to, to ensure that their needs are met. We're also working uh, with uh, CEQ at the White House to help develop their uh, Justice 40 applications from my office. So when you get down to the brass tacks of what we're doing in the Office of CIO, we're actually partnering with them uh, to develop applications to support them um, in that process. We've also developed a conversational AI application to assist uh, with the intake of small business capability statements um, within our uh, Office of Small and Disadvantaged Businesses, because that's one of the target places where we know we're going to be able to be able to support those efforts. And, and we've also built a small business search tool um, to help folks match opportunities. So we can get those small businesses in, we can get historically black colleges and universities in, minority serving institutions, things like that, that we can get them in, get them act active with our, with our solutions. DOE's hosted a Justice Week this past year uh, as our first ever Justice Week, um, where we had 4,000 external and internal stakeholders discussing DOE's justice and equity efforts, engaging them, making sure they understand how they can be involved in a new energy future for the United States that's a clean energy future. And again, we've built the dashboards, the tools to make sure we can track and monitor, make sure we're meeting our commitments. That's great to hear. And it's great to hear about how you know the data is tracking this and, and dashboarding. You've spoken about the importance of climate justice before, and I'm wondering if you can tell us why this work is so vital. Well, I think that, that, you know, so climate justice, to be clear, is not, it's not sort of my wheelhouse in the sense of it's not the responsibility of my department. But then again, we've talked a lot, a lot of things that aren't particularly the OCO's responsibility. Um, but, you know, climate justice is, is important in the sense of, of we want to create, so, so one of the tenets of this administration is that it's important to create an environment that is fair. It's a priority of the secretary to create an, an environment that's fair to, um, so, so, you know, the point of energy justice is simply, we cannot continue and we should not continue to overburden and disadvantage certain communities. And so the point of energy justice is to um, use, is to be equitable and not equal. And I think we've all seen the um, picture by now of equal where they put two boxes in behind a fence and the tall kid can see over and the short kid can't. And then equitable, you put uh, two boxes, one's bigger and one's smaller, and everybody gets to see over the fence. And it's the same idea is that we need to look at what equity is, and we need to uh, care for our communities that uh, need a little bit more of a hand up in order to have the same opportunities as everybody else. And so that's a priority of the secretary, that's part of the president, it's certainly a priority of all the leadership in DOE is to ensure that we level the playing field of opportunity. And this is one of the ways we can do that. We're going to take a break from today's interview and play a game I call Archive Deep Dive. 
where I challenge our hosts to identify a previous guest on our podcast. Playing today are Editor-in-Chief Amy Kluber and Staff Writer Researcher Catherine McPhail. Hi, Amy. Hi, Catherine. Hello. Hi, Alex. Here are the rules. I will play a clip, and if you know the speaker, buzz in using a buzzword. Today's buzzword is Agile. If you get wrong, the other player gets a chance to guess. If neither of you get the answer, I open the floor to random guessing until somebody gets it right, or I give up and tell you. And as a quick editor's note, yes, I am editing down the response time. Otherwise, you would be listening to a lot of silence and not a lot of game. Thank you. There are three clips today. Are you ready? Oh, man. Agile is like the buzz word of the entire industry. <laughs> Here is your first clip. If you think about the VA, one, you think about the scale of the organization. We're talking about the largest integrated healthcare provider in the United States. Um, it's the largest benefits company as, as well. Um, and so those two things together just create a massive opportunity to deliver services that are critically needed by veterans. And but I also have that opportunity to give back. Gonna go out on a limb and say it's the VA. This the voice is so familiar. Is it Ryan Vega at VA? Ooh, I'm sorry. It is not Ryan Vega. Catherine, who do you think it is? The recent interview with the Undersecretary for Health. No, that is incorrect. All right, I'm going to give you a hint. This speaker appeared at our Cyberscape Zero Trust event. Is that Kurt Delbeni? We have a winner. That is Kurt Delbeni, Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology, CIO, VA. Good job, Amy. His voice All... sounds so different when you can't see his face. <laughs> All right. Clip number two. My service in the Army is one of the many experiences that I've had that I think prepared me well for, for this role. I, I would say that each of my prior experiences have provided me with, with some tools and, and with some perspective that, that helped me serve our veterans. John Remy at VA. Yes. Wow. <laughs> that was Very so good. impressive. <laughs> Actually, yes. that was maybe one of my favorite interviews. Why was it your favorite? Well, we that was like one of our only video podcasts. So we not only did the podcast, but then we were able to put out some video clips on social media ahead of Veterans Day, actually. Oh, that's very fun. Yep. So that was Donald Remy, Deputy Secretary at the VA. All right. Time for our last guest. And I have a feeling you both will know this person. And for me, I'm really motivated by serving a cause greater than myself. And that's really what has kept me devoted to this particular mission in this agency as well. Hmm, that's that's a great clip, but I'm kind of a little bit stumped. Let me think. Man, who is that? See, the trick is it could be anyone because all public servants are devoted to their mission. But who is it? So every public servant is devoted to their mission, 
but this public servant is specifically dedicated to human-centered design. Oh, is it, um, was that Michelle Hoko? It is not. Catherine, do you have a guess? Is it um, Meg Glick from the Department of Education? No, it's not Meg Glick. All right, your other hint. She has appeared on a lot of virtual event panels. It's Krista Kennard. No. What? <laughs> you were so confident in that one. A lot of virtual panels, like our virtual panels? Our virtual panels, yeah. I'm like trying to picture the voice with the face. So Barbara all of Morton? these are, it is Barbara Morton. Woohoo! <laughs> all right, Amy, with the clean sweep of our archive deep dive for our GovCasts, thank you both for playing. And now back to the episode. I know, too, that climate change, climate change, climate resilience work, data is driving a lot of that. And it is also a very important part of thinking about how we're modernizing our systems. So speaking to our audience of federal IT professionals in the public and private sector, I'm wondering what future changes you might hope to see in the industry in order for it to become more sustainable and resilient, whether that's greenhouse gas emissions, supply chain analysis, what you hope data centers are going to look like, cryptocurrency, or any of those things? Yeah, I can uh, bring up a few examples of ways we think that uh, the industry can be more become more green. Uh, first of all, uh, data centers themselves, uh, there are great opportunities. Uh, in many cases, it doesn't really matter where your data center is within some reason. Um, and in fact, you know, other than the fact that you want some geographic diversity among your data centers. Um, so we can be smarter about where we put data centers across the industry uh, to take advantage of uh, climates that are uh, going to require less heating and cooling. So we have places where we have data centers where we can use air side economizers, which basically means bring in cool air from the outside, whether that's all day or in the evening but climates that don't, aren't necessarily particularly cold, right? So these temperate climates where you can uh, have a data center and you don't have to use a lot of heating and air conditioning resources to manage those computers in that data center. Um, we can also continue to take advantage of, of, of capabilities like virtualization, um, like optimizing our solutions, you know, only, only using the processing power we need when we need it and spinning up more capability when we need it. That actually are some of the benefits of going to cloud services providers is because they have that scale and they're able to, to, to manage workloads and balance workloads and also place the data center in a location where you might not be able to because you don't have those resources. Um, and so those are the kind of questions people need to be asking their service providers when they when they um, put data centers in place, or should we put capabilities in place at data centers is, you know, what is it that you're doing? How are you managing your data center? Are you being uh, uh, economical with your data center? We also have a variety of tools to monitor and make data centers more efficient. Some of those were actually created for our ca for capabilities for ourselves and anyone who wants to use them at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. So you can go out and get those tools uh, from, from the lab and use those to increase the efficiency in your data centers. So data centers are a big thing because there's lots of data centers and more computing power every day, and that's not going to change. Um, some other things, um, you know, cryptocurrency and 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 the blockchain 
are a huge issue for um, the use of computing power and consequently the use of energy. Uh, we've seen one cryptocurrency radically change its operating model so that it uses much, much less energy. Uh, and so I think we really need to evaluate um, the, the cryptocurrency field and, and understand how to reduce those costs. Uh, and to, to there, there obviously are ways to do that. We've seen it done. And you know the, the, the difference between proof of work and proof of stake is pretty significant. Um, and being able to make some decisions uh, about how, how you're going to want to do that to make things less uh, user, less computationally intensive, because we're, you know, we're not getting rid of Bitcoin. We're not getting rid of the blockchain, but how do we make that less computationally intensive? Uh, and I think the other thing, which I mentioned, when we talked about batteries is the supply chain. There, there are national security risks associated with our current supply chain, but there are also costs. Uh, I had thought, you know, 25 years ago, I said, well, you know, the supply chain is coming back eventually because eventually you're going to run out of places that are cheap to, to do business or so much cheaper that it makes sense to do all that shipping. Um, I think we've chosen other reasons why we're bringing supply chains back. I think, as I said, national security issues mm -hmm. about who's manufacturing things. Um, also, our experience um, during COVID of recognizing how easy it is to disrupt a just-in-time supply chain or simply a long supply chain. Uh, so we're going to see semiconductor manufacturing uh, coming back to the U.S., I hope. We're going to see uh, some assembly. I think we'll see the... Uh, Machine-intensive uh, businesses coming back first. That's fairly obvious as to why. Um, but there are other industries. You know, this is not a, an IT thing, but machine tools. We have a serious issue with machine tool capability in the United States. So, from a national security standpoint, as well as a um, uh, reduction in energy, we need to be bringing these capabilities back to the United States. Um, and then, obviously, the thing I haven't mentioned, which is sort of a slam dunk, is when you are powering data centers, when you are doing things like uh, you know, cryptocurrency mining, that we're using clean energy to do those. We have the ability to use any number of clean energies that have gotten, um, that are getting cost competitive with uh, less clean energies. And uh, we're seeing the ability coming on the horizon for even more cost-effective, more new and exciting clean energy opportunities. So we need to be asking our suppliers where are you getting the energy from? What kind of energy are you using? Can you convert to a clean energy, a zero carbon energy to do this work? So those are some of the, the key things that, uh, that you know, we're, we look at that I think um, we want to see in the future. Um, and there's, there's a lot of other things, obviously, um, out there uh, that we can, uh, that we can uh, hit in the future. Speaking of the future... It is the new year. And so I wanted to ask you, what are you most looking forward to in 2023? In 2023, uh, what am I most looking forward to? I, I think, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's implementation season. There's a lot of exciting stuff going on at DOE. Uh, at the end of last year, we made a major breakthrough in fusion energy, uh, creating a reaction that generated more energy than it took. Um, and so that's, a, that's exciting to see this year how that goes. Um, but we have lots of exciting things on the horizon at DOE. Uh, we're getting the folks together internally uh, to talk about uh, you know, what we're doing in, in, in cybersecurity and our new research innovations in that space. Um, we have our, our, cyber, our DOE Cybersecurity and Technology Innovation Conference coming up in the spring. And uh, we're just looking forward to seeing how we can help the rest of DOE um, uh, build our clean energy future.
Great. Well, Anne, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Is there anything else that you would like to add or anything that you would like the federal IT industry to think about when it comes to IT and climate resilience? I think that the most important thing to, to do is to think about climate resilience. I think it's very easy to get focused on the next big feature, the next new exciting thing. But uh, the, the, the important thing is to be thinking about how everything we do uh, can be more resilient, whether that's as a, as a service provider, whether it's as a manufacturer or uh, a customer or when we go home at night, uh, how can we um, use less um, polluting energy, use more clean energy, and overall use less energy? Because obviously the easiest thing to do, just like in the world of, of recycling, um, is to reduce. So where can we reduce our energy consumption? That's always the first thing we want to do. Then how can we use cleaner energy? How can we be more efficient in, in that use of clean energy? Great. Well, thank you so much again, Anne. It's been great to have you. Yes. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Catherine. That was a really fascinating conversation, Catherine. Are there any last thoughts that you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is just to keep having this conversation and really get people on board because the time has come to build a greener economy and a greener government. Definitely. And if our listeners want to continue the conversation, we actually just published a new GovFocus which is data modeling strategies in federal climate resilience efforts. It features speakers from the Department of Energy, Kyle Pfeiffer and Peter E. Thornton. So if you're interested in hearing more about climate resilience, you can go to our website, govciomedia.com to watch that GovFocus. Catherine, thank you for joining me today. Tune in in two weeks for a brand new GovCast. Until then, I'm Alexander Bolova. I'm Catherine McPhail. Thank you for listening. GovCast, along with HealthCast and CyberCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them on your favorite podcast platform, and if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at govcio.com.